is the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Good afternoon. I'm Callie Buchanan. Thanks for your company today. We're going to dive into a good old-fashioned cereal box and pull out a solution for fighting invasive ants. Sounds far-fetched, I know, but you'll learn all about the technology that's helping us do that before half past 12. And we'll take a look at the latest thinking around the challenge that is Varroa mite and how a management strategy is changing the approach to dealing with that pest. That's all still to come on the Queensland Country Hour. As always, I'd love to hear from you this afternoon. 0487 if you'd like to share what you're up to with me this afternoon. I'd love to know. 0487 And as promised, the Fat Bear Week content continues tomorrow. I'm going to introduce you to the bears, but today we're going to introduce you to some of the rangers that are helping out with Fat Bear Week occupying a lot of my attention this week and I hope it uh, puts a smile on your face as well. 0487993222 if you'd like to get in touch. As we move closer to what's predicted to be a very dry summer, cattle producers are trying to make the most of the feed they have left in their paddocks. Now it's a long and slow process but one outback droving team are walking 2,000 head from the Gulf to the Central West and taking advantage of the feed along the state's stock route. Madeleine McCosker filed this report. Dust fills the cloudless sky as drovers on horseback slowly push 2,000 head of Brahmin cattle down a narrow dirt road. We're on the stock route between Winton and Longreach in western Queensland. The quiet of the outback is interrupted only by the shuffle of hooves on black soil, a crackly message over the two-way or a whistle to the working dogs. Yeah, bulldog. It's something you might expect to see in an old western movie, but this is modern-day cattle droving. Bill Little has been droving Queensland's long paddock for more than 40 years now. Fat, yeah. Married to the mob. No, it's full on. Like We do the same thing every day. We get up early, we look after the cows all day, we try and get to bed early, just do it all again next day. Um, It has its good points and its bad points, but I'm still doing it, so it must be all right. Bill and his small team of drovers are walking this mob more than 2,100 kilometres from Julia Creek in northwest Queensland to Tambo in the central west. They've already been on the road for three months and walking less than 20 kilometres a day means they won't arrive to the Tambo station until early November. Even with the help of 23 dogs and about a dozen horses, it's slow going for the team of four. We don't even know what day it is half the time. It's probably not everyone's cup of tea. If you want to test out your um, relationship with your partner, just go driving for a while. (laughs) Even though it may seem from the outside like something from a movie, Bill says the romance of droving wears off quickly. Well, you know, we get that all the time with the people I employ. 
um, they come with that notion that it, you're riding along, whistling a tune and boiling the billy and all that, but they don't realise there's a lot of work in the job, especially if you do it properly, you know. And it's strangely enough, the more work you do, the easier it gets. But, yeah, the romance, um, we, you know, I try and tell these people to come work for me, it's not all that easy out here, you know. The big days, you get up early, it's hot. A lot of them get what we call two-week-itis. The first week's a buzz, the second week they start to get tired and the third week they're gone. So we call it two-week-itis. Now that La Nina has been officially declared, cattle prices are falling and producers are preparing for the oncoming dry. For the first time since 2019, the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator sits below $4 per kilogram carcass weight. Longreach livestock agent Boyd Curran is optimistic that prices won't stay low for long. Oh, look, I think the seasonal outlook is, is um, having a major impact on what's happening with cattle prices at the moment. I feel very fortunate that we've got uh, beautiful feed and we're able to take advantage um, of the lower cattle prices. And I have no doubt that when we see a break in the season, a widespread break in the season, we're going to see a major correction in these cattle prices. Back at camp, the droving team is up at the crack of dawn, packing up and preparing for another day on the long paddock. After a quick cup of coffee as the sun rises, they saddle their horses and take down the temporary fencing. In no time, the cattle are back on the road. Young drover Lucy Spranger didn't grow up on the land, but after hearing about the life of a drover from a friend, she knew that's what she wanted to do. I had dreamed of it for a long time, actually. Yeah, when I was 15, a Lily Pilly, a friend of mine, a neighbour actually back home, she was working for Bill and told me about it, and I was like, far out, one day I've got to do that. And then I was driving up for a job in Mount Isa, and I met Bill along the way, and he said he's a drover, and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, got to go there. <laughs> And yeah, so I'd actually heard about it a while ago and thought one day, and yeah, now here I am. <laughs> and to her, there's no better job. Oh, I love it. Like, where else would you want to be, honestly, you know? Mornings like this, it's just insane, yeah, for sure. There's always something going on, you know? A bit of banter, something with the cattle. Like, sometimes you miss, you know, talking to people, but you've got these mates, and we duck into the pub along the way and things. But it's great, yeah, just wide open spaces. Yeah, I love it. I really do, yeah. Drover Lucy Springer ending that report from Madeline McCosker. It's 11 past 12. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. A computer game once given away in kids' cereal boxes is now helping Australia eradicate inv- invasive ant species. Yes, helping eradicate invasive ants. Megan Hughes has this report. If you're a millennial or just enjoy playing computer games, that sound may trigger some nostalgia. It's to signal you're under attack in the Age of Empires computer game. Australian scientists have taken this classic strategy game and are using it to simulate ant warfare. Ants are one of the few groups of animal species in which warfare resembles human warfare in terms of scale and mortality. So that meant we were able to use some well-developed theories of human warfare to look at ant battles. That's Dr Samuel Limbury, who undertook this research through the University of Western Australia and Australia's national science agency, CSIRO. Using the game, the team built armies and battlegrounds of different sizes and shapes and watched them fight, then mapped the results. What we did is we selected soldiers that clearly differed 
in their individual strength or their individual combat ability and we formed small groups of strong soldiers and we opposed them to increasingly larger groups of weaker soldiers individually weaker soldiers in simple open battlefields and in complex uh, battlefields with complex terrain and alleyways to defend. The armies created in the game behaved in a very simple, predictable and quantifiable way, which allows mathematical models of warfare to emerge. The researchers then conducted experiments with ants and compared the models to the live ants that behave unpredictably. For this study, they looked specifically at two types of ants, the native Australian meat ant and the invasive Argentine ant. We confirmed the idea that small armies of the strong meat ants performed much better against the large armies of the weaker Argentine ants in the complex than in the simple environments. Putting this into some real-world context, a simple battlefield would be a footpath or an urban park, and a complex battlefield would be a bushland strip with undergrowth, small bushes and woody debris. Dr Limbery said his work could help with eradication efforts. Further down the track, future management techniques might be able to, to help combat some invasive ant species by introducing some undergrowth or some ground level complexity back into urbanised or disturbed environments in order to tip the competitive balance in terms of um, direct warfare interactions back in favour of the larger but less numerous native ants. Across the country, 50 different species of invasive ants have established themselves, including electric ants, fire ants and yellow crazy ants. Invasive Species Council Principal Policy Analyst Dr Carol Booth says they're hard to get rid of. We're currently spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to eradicate at least four ants nationally as well as several in different regions. So for Australia, ants are one of the worst invasive species problems we have. So why are they so bad? What sort of impact do they have? One thing is, you know, they're tiny and they're great travellers, so they move around the world, hidden away in all sorts of goods and in the nooks and crannies of containers and on shipping. In combination with being highly aggressive and highly social, it means they can dominate vast areas. One of the things about some of the invasive ants is that they can form these vast super colonies with multiple queens and many interconnected nests, which allows them to achieve these really high densities over vast areas, which means, you know, they outcompete other ants, they can prey on all sorts of animals. So they essentially suppress the populations of a lot of other species around them. Invasive ants have also been known to eat crops, attack livestock and damage infrastructure in Australia's agriculture industry. But there's hope with research like Dr Limbery's, Australia's capacity for invasive ant eradication will only improve. At this stage, the study is specific only to the Argentine and meat ants, but Dr Limbery hopes to expand it to other species. And if you're thinking it must be fun to play a computer game for work, it may not be as much as it seems. It was chosen as, a, as an engaging way of sort of illustrating our results. That particular part of it wasn't super hard work, but also I would say that this is probably the most boring way to play a video game in that <laughs> in, a, in a scientific way, what you want to do is set up exactly the same scenario over and over again, um, run it in a very repetitive fashion and not interfere too much. So if you want to actually get, you know, it's some recreation time out of playing a video game, this isn't the best way to do it. <laughs> Researcher Dr. Samuel Limbury ending that report from Megan Hughes. It's 16 past 12.
well before the sun starts shining. Our local team are starting their day, getting ready to help you start yours. We'll make you laugh, we'll make you cry, but mostly we'll inform you as to what's happening. Local news, national news, weather and what our community is up to. ABC Breakfast, getting you grounded for the day. Weekday mornings on ABC Radio and live on the ABC Listen app. You are listening to the Queensland Country Hour and I'd love to hear from you this afternoon. 0487 993 2 is the number to send me a text. I'm going to introduce you to two of the rangers who are taking care of Fat Bear Week in Alaska this week and uh, tomorrow I'm going to introduce you to the bears. Can I just say... If you have any, uh, any, if the Hall of Champions is anything to go by, there's some chonky boys in our future, I can tell you that. We'll talk about that before one o'clock. We're going to stay on the issue, though, of invasive species for a little longer. With varroa mites seemingly here to stay, a biotech company claims to have found an easier way for beekeepers to test for the parasite. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware, but at the moment, the current test is the alcohol wash, which does, of course, mean that some bees are destroyed in the testing process. But using similar technology that was used to detect COVID-19 in wastewater during the pandemic, testing with cotton swabs or even samples of honey could prove to be an alternative to that alcohol washing or a sugar shake. Dr Evgeny Glazov is a regional manager for applied genomics at Illumina. He tells Annie Brown how it works. So eDNA refers to environmental DNA. That's what E stands for. Every living organism has DNA and they shed this DNA into environment. Uh, and what we can do, we can detect those fragments shed into environment to detect those organisms. Uh, in a similar way, we've done it um, in um, during COVID-19 pandemic when we detect um, SARS-CoV-2 virus in wastewater, for example. Yeah, right. Okay. So it's the same technology that was used for that testing in, in it's a It's a very similar technology. It's basically detecting fragments of DNA in different types of environment. And it can be wastewater, can be aquatic environment, can be air, can be any, any other type of samples like soil. So how can this kind of DNA testing be used for varroa mite and helping beekeepers out? So this is a very promising approach to make testing more scalable and more sensitive for beekeepers, because right now, uh, typically people use what is known as alcohol wash test when they take a well, cup full of bees and then soak them in ethanol that causes mites to fall off. And then people look for those mites uh, in liquid to tell whether or not they have infestation. Um, obviously, this is very invasive and very laborious technique where, uh, first of all, bees that are being tested are um, killed by ethanol, uh, and second, also mites that fall off from bees are very small, uh, and uh, they're only easy to detect when you have relatively large infestation in your colony. Uh, when you have mild infestation, often uh, those situation goes undetected, and that increases the risk of wider spread. Uh, what eDNA um, or other molecular techniques can do, and genomics in general, is to provide an early warning system where you can detect uh, mites at this early infestation stage when it's easier to contain and easier to treat. And it's uh, also a lot less um, invasive. In case of eDNA, you can also test honey 
that also contains DNA um, that can be done routinely as part of the beekeeper's process of collecting honey. So it's just like a, a swab through a beehive instead of... Yeah, it can be a swab. Of bee, you're absolutely right. It can be a swab similar to what, again, what we've done uh, with uh, SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, a similar type of swab of beehive itself, or, as I said, just um, sample honey as part of the honey collection and then extract or isolate uh, DNA fragments from honey. How accurate is this testing? This testing can be very, um, it can be more sensitive because it can detect uh, infestation at earlier stages. But in terms of accuracy, it can be uh, tailored to be very specific to my DNA and uh, detection of fragments of my DNA. Or another approach that we call metagenomics, you can look at entire pool of DNA in, a, in that sample to look at everything that is there. And that's where genomics uh, adds another advantage compared to traditional methodologies because it goes beyond just detection of the mite itself. Uh, it can also um, give you information about what viruses or what other pathogens mite can carry because uh, part of the problem with uh, mite infestation is not just the fact that mites are parasite on bees themselves, but also that they, they carry different type of viruses. So are beekeepers using this technology right now to test? It's at relatively early stages. It's been, I know it's been tested by different research organizations around the country, like Department of uh, Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries, CSIRO, also, for example, National eDNA Reference Center um, in Canberra, where I'm now uh, they've been evaluating that approach, and that's how they also can tell um, us about sensitivity of this methodology, but it's in relatively early stages of being accessible more broadly. What are some of those challenges, I guess, as well for beekeepers to use it? Is it quite expensive, I imagine, or um, quite hard to to use, I guess, or get access to people who can do the testing? Yeah, so I think it's a question of access in relatively early stage of this methodology is being developed because uh, in some cases people simply may not know what's what's available. In other cases, uh, it's a fact that um, unlike ethanol or alcohol wash type of test that can be performed directly by beekeepers near beehive, this is still relatively specialized. A test that requires people with laboratory experience and that means sending those samples to reference laboratory. As we have more of those laboratories available providing the type of testing, I think that uh, that approach will become more common. Yeah, and so now we've moved into a, f a phase where we are managing varroa mite. We've sort of abandoned the idea of, of eradicating it from Australia. Is this technology something that could be very useful in the future? Yes, absolutely, because uh, one thing that I didn't mention before is that um, using genomics in general can I said, uh, help you to look at the genome of the mite itself. And where it helps, similar to uh, SARS-CoV-2, it can help us to understand the spread of, uh, of the pests, um, understand uh, how it adapts to a new environment, understand where it comes from, potentially understand transmission routes, uh, and help to manage a wider spread. Also, for example, when we talk about um, mites being present constantly in the environment and beekeepers still to still want to um, move their, their beehives and colonies around, this type of testing can be uh, part of the clearance system which 
uh, can um, allow beekeepers to still be confident about moving hives around without spreading um, mites. Dr. Evgeny Glazov from Illumina speaking to Annie Brown. This is the Queensland Country Hour. It's 25 past 12. Well, yes, the time and cost involved in managing varroa mite could force half of Australia's amateur beekeepers to hang up their bee suits. That prediction is based on research on the impact of varroa mite on the beekeeping industry in New Zealand and America. Now, Stuart and Cedar Anderson are the father and son team who revolutionised backyard beekeeping, and they certainly hope that's not the case. I'm sure you've seen their flow hive getting around. They invented it, and they tell Kim Honan that the decision to transition to management of the mite didn't come as a surprise to them. It was always a long shot to eradicate the mite from our shores, and One way to look at it is we're lucky to not have had this mite for the last 30 years like many other continents have had. And so what do you think a transition to management looks like for flow hive beekeepers? Do you think it will be harder for them to manage? It's a bit of a hassle. It's a new thing to learn, but it's not too big a deal. It involves assessing the mite load of your bees, which people are doing already, doing the alcohol wash or, or the hot soapy water or whatever, and then using strips when necessary to control the numbers of varroa, strips that just get inserted on top of the brood box. So uh, I've I've done that in the US with beekeepers and, you know, it's just another operation to add, but it's, it's, you know, clearly the rest of the world's doing it and managing it. It's not too big a deal. Yeah, so how have flow hive beekeepers around the world been managing varroa mites? It's been in these countries for years, for decades in many. Well, because we started off as global, it meant we built pest management into the bottom of our hives. And that is lucky for us here in Australia too, because now that we have the mite, we can use the pest management tray, not only for the hive beetles, but also to help assess the mites. And how do you do that? So that's done by inserting a sticky board and the mites fall through the uh, screened bottom board and then you can count them and work out whether you need to treat or not with that hive. And do you know how many flow hive beekeepers in red zones had to euthanize hives during the varroa mite response? It's in the hundreds. Yeah, we're not sure exactly how many. So a really devastating time, no doubt, for them. Oh, just awful. It's, I mean, you get attached to your bees just like you do to your family, dog or cat, you know, and um, they have their own personality, each hive, and so to have to euthanise them, yeah, it's, it's just horrible, really, really awful. So they've had to destroy the, their bee colonies. Did they have to also destroy their entire hive, the, the, the box, the frames? Um, they had to destroy the brood section, which is usually the bottom box, but they didn't have to destroy... The flow super um, had to clean it, clean it out of bees, of course, and the colony itself was destroyed. But the gear, which I guess is the more expensive part of the hive, as far as our customers are concerned, the flow frames themselves didn't have to get destroyed. So we're hearing that, um, based on sort of research from from overseas, that you know around half of amateur beekeepers are likely to leave the industry with the extra time and the extra costs in managing varroa mite. Do you think that that estimate is accurate? And what are your thoughts on that? Well, we really hope not, because it's really important 
for us to have enough beekeepers to manage enough populations in order to do the pollination work that's needed. So it's going to be more important than ever to be a beekeeper and look after your bees. And do you think that the beekeepers that have had to euthanize their hives are likely to restock? Well, some of yeah, some of them will, and some of them are going to find it pretty. They'll be disheartened and it'll be hard. So we'll do our best to encourage them, of course, and um, and also thank them and all all the commercial beekeepers as well for the sacrifice they've made, which which helped slow varroas and and was part of hoping to eradicate it and not have it on our shores. So they were the ones that made the sacrifice. And I know there's some monetary compensation, but, you know, that's not uh, that, that's just a part of the um, distress, isn't it? The money distress at, at losing your bees. So we hope we can encourage them back into beekeeping. And we know there's many that are keen because we're getting requests from those now orange zones when can I keep bees again? You know, the latest from the DPI is that uh, beekeepers now don't need to wait up till three years to restock their hives. I mean, that's the great news at the moment is is there's no more hives being destroyed and also people will be able to start beekeeping again. And how needed do you think are our backyard and amateur beekeepers, especially since we're you know, going to lose such a, a large portion of the feral bee population in Australia? It's unknown the wide-reaching effects of a pollination crisis. So it's really important that we do keep up beekeeping, knowing, as you say, that we are losing a lot of the feral colonies that actually did play an important role in pollination because humans and honeybees are actually intertwined where we now have an agricultural system that relies on this species Apis mellifera, the European honeybee, which does an extraordinary amount of pollination. A single hive can pollinate 50 million flowers in a day and we just don't have anything to replace that. So beekeepers will be very important. Father and son, Stuart and Cedar Anderson, inventors of the Flow Hive, speaking to Kim Honan. It's 29 to 1. On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour. We're going to stick with the challenges brought on by various species after the weather and we're going to take some time to stroll through a forest and give a little bit of appreciation before... We head off to the markets where that trend downward has continued. That's all still to come on the Queensland Country Hour before one o'clock. Let's check in with the Weather Bureau now, though. Phelan Hennefee is on duty. Good afternoon, Phelan. Good afternoon, indeed. I'm going to start with the fire weather warning that the Bureau's issued. Can you take us through the details of that one for the Channel Country? Yeah, indeed, yeah. So we're looking at um, local extreme fire dangers possible in the Channel Country this afternoon. And that's ahead of an approaching trough that's moving in there. So we do have a fire weather warning current as a result of that. And that's due to the fact that those gusty, very gusty uh, northerly winds ahead of it and also those very high temperatures, temps uh, into the low 40s as well today. Now, there is a hint of the cloud, that change driving those that fire weather conditions here that change will move into the Channel Country later tonight, so we'll see a gusty southerly change moving in, and that's going to cool off those temperatures. 
So you would ex- would you expect that those conditions would would ease this evening? No, indeed, yeah. Today is the peak of it in terms of the fire weather warning for the for the Channel Country. Even tomorrow, though, the fire dangers, though not as high as today, they'll be still high. Now, no pun intended, but they'll mm-hmm. still remain high tomorrow, but not as elevated as today. Uh, those cooler southwesterlies, they're still going to be dry, so it means with that wind flow in place, you still get the high dangers behind the system. But today is really the peak of it where you got those very gusty northerly winds, but also the very high temperatures as well. And I must add as well, with that change tonight, there's a chance of some raised dust as well spreading in across the southwest. Yeah, take us through what's behind that, particularly those those gusty conditions. Yeah, indeed, it's caused by a pretty significant trough feature that's over um, central Australia at the moment. It's linked to a low-pressure system that's winding itself up down over parts of Victoria and southern New South Wales. Now that low will move off the coast and spin up and it'll drag that trough behind it as well into the Channel Country, then across the interior and eventually the east coast over the next day or two. Behind it, we get a ridge building and that forces up a much cooler, the combination of them two factors help draw up a much cooler southwesterly airflow across most interiors. So we are looking at high temperatures ahead that today, so temps into the low 40s, cooling off tomorrow and then by Thursday, more broadly across the west, we're looking at temperatures probably into the into the low to mid-20s as well. So much, much cooler conditions uh, as we go through the second half of the week spreading in behind that system. When you say low-pressure system, I can't help but hope for moisture. Any sign on the horizon? No, with this system, uh, very little in the way of moisture with it. Now, there will be a chance all the same of some shower and storm activity spreading into the more southern parts of the Channel Country, there south of Birdsville, and then across parts of the southern interior and southeast with this system. Further north, though, it's mainly just around that, that kind of gusty wind change moving up, so dry, really dry conditions with it. It's more the wind and the cooler conditions that will be reflective of this system rather than any shower and storm activity. But during tomorrow, as that system moves into the southern interior, it could generate some gusty, severe thunderstorm activity as well across parts of the Marino and Warrigal. So a little bit of storm activity, but probably not a lot of falls. Yeah, indeed. Indeed, rainfall, not a, not a major focus with this system. It's mainly going to be the wind element as well with any storm activity that does occur. And so when, did that, when were you expecting to see that, that easing of the temperatures particularly? Now, in the southwest, we'll probably see that tomorrow, the system moving into the southern tier by that stage. So parts of the southwest and even far west will probably start to cool off significantly behind that during tomorrow. And then more broadly across the interior uh, come Thursday as the weather system moves um, towards and over the east coast as well. And then broadly, really, behind that, it's a much fresher feel. Temperatures uh, generally near or below average, really, over the next, over the for the latter part of the week and over the weekend. And you know, well below average across parts of the far west, you know, temperatures into the into the low to mid-20s rather than the high high 30s and low 40s we're seeing today. Don't pack away the heavy blankets just yet by the sounds of it. Um, what about for the coast? What's the coastal forecast over the next few days? Yeah, we've got plenty of showers um, along the coast today and over the next few days you'll have some showers peppering parts of the east coast. The winds aren't, aren't as... Uh, bluster as we saw in recent days, particularly last week. So the wind's somewhat a little bit of a reprieve from those strong wind warnings, though we will see them pick up a little down over the southeastern waters during tomorrow, and that's as that weather system approaches. And probably the, more, the next more the next main wind surge that'll bring trigger the strong wind warnings, probably not till the weekend when we have a good firm 
southeastly trade uh, come back in play probably like as we go through later Saturday and during Sunday. But between now and then, uh, very little in the way of little or nothing really in the way of marine, marine wind warnings apart from the southeast tomorrow. We will definitely keep an eye on the Bureau's website for those warnings. Phelan, thank you for your time on the Queensland Country Hour. My pleasure. Phelan Hanafi on duty for you at the Bureau. Conversations. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. The Chinese lanterns of plastic had melted from the ceiling down to the floor, like these black, grotesque stalactites. Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. Five canoes, ten men in each. One of the men tried to board the boat. There was no escape at that point. Hear the latest conversations. Weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio. Or anytime on the ABC Listen app. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. It's coming up to 22 to 1. This is the Queensland Country Hour and I'd love to hear from you this afternoon. 0487 993 2 is the number to send me a text, particularly if you've been struggling in parts of the north and northwest of Queensland because of hordes of rats. They're causing havoc in cane fields, grazing country and of course in people's homes. Lucy Cooper reports from Rutchelow Station near Julia Creek. Last night I was driving along the highway and I could not believe my eyes. Rats, thousands of them everywhere. It was just incredible. The rats, the mice and then of course the owls. And I'm joined by Kimberly Wilson. Kimberly, Is there a plague? It is atrocious. We've had a plague for quite a few months now. It, um, I can't pinpoint exactly when it started, but my husband and kids did my veggie patch up for me for Mother's Day and it lasted a couple of weeks before they decimated it. So sometime the end of May, the beginning of June, and they're still going strong now, the end of September. And I feel like they've ramped up actually again in the last couple of weeks because they were leaving a lot of my veggie patch alone, but at the moment, they are just destroying my tomatoes. Um, they seem to leave the zucchinis and squash alone a bit. I don't know whether it's the spikiness of the fur, but everything else is um, decimated. They love strawberries. I poked my head out the other night to find one sitting there just going yomp, yomp, yomp on a strawberry of mine. Um, but they've destroyed everything. They chew your dripper line, your vehicles, anything that you leave out. My husband's got great big chew marks in his hat because it fell off the hat rack one evening onto the floor and so he has rats chewed all his hats. Just seeing them scamper across the highway and even at the top pub in Julia Creek, they're out the back there scampering around. Are they rats? Are they mice? Do you know what they are? No, they're definite rats. They're um, they're gross. They're big. Some of them are massive and they are just destroying everything. And they, our chooks, we can't have their feeders down or anything now because that's just feeding them through the night. So you have to make sure you're feeding them every single day, whereas we normally have a big self-feeder. Um, for the chooks, you can't leave anything out. Cords they chew and... Um, yeah, it's not pretty at the moment. I mean, it's a beautiful season out here, green along the highway. It's always great to see. I mean, even at this time of year, uh, the rats having an impact 
I would imagine they would, um, you know, around the house we see everything that they've chewed. So I imagine what they're doing out in the paddock as well. And it's um, it's not pleasant. They, oh, I would imagine that because I found one of my rose bushes the other day, they had gnawed off the roots of a rose bush that I'd had there for years and just totally destroyed it. So it fell over and is, yeah, is dead now. So I imagine what they're doing to the native grasses, to... Um, trees, the pasture, not to mention they're taking all food and everything away from our natural dunnarts and all of those kind of animals. Will a good, strong, wet fix the problem? So we we actually thought that um, it would get rid of them, but in the middle of the year we had some decent rain and it did not do anything. We thought it would have got rid of a mob, but no, it it didn't. Kimberly Wilson of Rochelow Station with Lucy Cooper. And it's not a problem contained to the northwest for cane growers in the Herbert. The fear is the local industry could lose more than $5 million worth of crops due to the ongoing rat infestation. Productivity Services Manager Lawrence DeBella says the industry needs a coordinated response to tackle the plague. We've had really the perfect storm. Four mile wet seasons, no major flooding, so haven't drowned the little buggers in their burrows. We've had this year um, a long wet season, but not a flooding wet season where growers just couldn't get out and mow headlands and clean things up. But probably the, the big challenge we've got is we've got around about 400 to 500 tonne of standover, which was a crop we couldn't cut last year. And that's been a really good harbourage area for the rats this year. Um, a lot of the standover is severely ratting to the point that some of the blocks aren't worth harvesting anymore. The growers lost not just one year's lost two years income. Our one year cane is also uh, being impact, impacted now. So what we're seeing is the rats are migrating from harvested fields into non-harvested fields and, and they're actually mowing ahead of the cane harvests at the moment. So the damage is pretty bad that we've seen. I've been in the industry over 30 years and this is probably the worst I've ever seen. What's the solution then? Um in your eyes? So at, at the moment, we're going to really try to get this crop off. That's one. And um, if we can do um, some strategic baiting, and probably the biggest challenge is some growers are doing the baiting and some growers aren't. We need to actually work together and uh, everybody get in and, and do their baiting. Um, rats, like feral pigs, know no boundaries of farms or anything, so they'll move from farm to farm, block to block. So we need to work together to actually get on top of this problem. Herbert Kane Productivity Services Manager Lawrence DeBella speaking with Jason Katsaris. If you're dealing with a pest problem at your place, 0487 993 2 I'd love to hear how you're tackling it. This is the Queensland Country Hour and it is 17, almost 16 to 1, 0487 993 2 to send me a text today. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Now, Australia currently has no vaccine available to help prevent ticks biting cattle. Vaccines have been developed in other countries and there are a number of vaccine candidates available, but they're yet to be developed. Veterinarian Dr Johann Schroeder has been an advocate for a tick vaccine for years. He says it's up to the commercial sector to develop it, but the industry also needs to get behind it. 
the commercial companies would really have to be excited about the commercial potential of such a product. There are a number of antigens which have been described in the scientific literature. Uh, they have varying degrees of efficacy in the small-scale trials which, in which they've been tested. Um, what is exciting and interesting about them is that they have a, a wider spectrum of efficacy, so they work against more ticks than just the, the, the cattle ticks. So they could potentially offer us the possibility, but they need to be uh, presented in a way that makes them attractive to a pharmaceutical company to actually take them to market. There would still be a certain amount of uh, investment required in developing this product to the point where it can be registered by the regulator, like the APVMA, uh, which is absolutely necessary before the product can make it to the market. Um, so... We need somebody with deep pockets who can fund this development work. As I say, there are a number of scientific publications of proteins which have been identified as being antigenic or immunogenic against ticks. Uh, they need to be tested to make sure what sort of doses which one need. Uh, is it necessary or desirable, for example, to have maybe have a combination of two or more of these antigens in one vaccine to make sure that the spectrum of efficacy is wide enough uh, to provide sufficient uh, protection? Um, there are a number of ticks in Australia now against, uh, against which cattle need to be protected uh, so you know, a broad spectrum vaccine makes absolute sense but it needs to make commercial sense to the to the industry that's eventually going to take it to market uh, before, it be, before it can become a reality Is this something the industry itself needs to get behind to make it commercial? I think the industry needs to send a clear signal that they have the need. Uh, I think this is one uh, point that's been missing is a clear market signal that there is a need for, for such a product. So uh, and this part of the reason for my talk in this conference was to try and fire up enthusiasm with producers to to express their need for an antigen, for a, a vaccine against ticks on their cattle, uh, a, a sufficient of a need that will... That will uh, alert the, the pharmaceutical industry to the fact that there's a possibility for them to actually make money because that's what's going to entice them into it. They, they're into, in it for the profit, not for any other reason. Well, tell us how you think cattle producers could benefit if there was a tick vaccine on the market that they could buy and use. There are a number of, of uh, benefits that I can see accrue from this. First of all, um, the fact that the life of chemicals for tick control is always limited. It, 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 it's just a matter of time before any new chemical is blighted by the selection of resistant strains of ticks and the chemical just no longer does the trick. Uh, increasingly, there is concern from a, an environmental and a sustainability point of view about residues of chemicals in, in, in edible food, so in meat, uh, in meat, for example. So chemicals are, are less favoured because of that possibility and chemicals again also sometimes pose the risk of unwanted environmental effects either environmental contamination or maybe uh, an unwanted eff effect against beneficial insects like bees or whatever the case might be so uh, from that point of view it would be attractive to producers no longer to have to rely as heavily on, ke on chemicals as they currently do. That's Dr. Johan Schroeder, a veterinarian from Gemini R&D Services, speaking to Dan Fitzgerald. It's 12 to 1. We'll head to the markets. Warwick and Roma have both got interim reports. 
the slide in the prices, though, seems to be continuing, particularly if that condition just isn't there. You'll get the full details before one o'clock. Teenagers. I don't like myself that much. And older folks. Getting older. It stinks. They might be worlds apart, but they share the same feelings. I just don't want to be judged. Very few friends. And it's time to open their hearts. There's a little voice inside me saying, go for it, baby. We are the champions. We love them unconditionally. The brand new season of Old People's Home for Teenagers. I love old people. They're just so cute. Starts tonight on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. From helping tackle the wet tropics lush rainforests to helping the people of Nepal tackle deforestation to leading an international forest conservation program from Switzerland, Dr Donald Gilmore's fascinating work has taken him all over the world. The adjunct professor at the University of the Sunshine Coast has received King's Birthday Honours being awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for his work. He's speaking to Jennifer Nichols. It's been very diverse. I've been very fortunate to have been in the right place at the right time. Forests really appealed to me because of the opportunities, which I didn't really know about, but the very emotional, uh, emotive thing at the time, I suppose. So I managed to study forest at university and from there came back to Queensland uh, after Queensland Government Scholarship and uh, went to North Queensland and Athens, which in those days, in the 1960s, was uh, far away from Brisbane. So we spent 13 very happy and somewhat productive years in North Queensland working on forestology aspects of tropical rainforest management. That was a very interesting time, an era when uh, conservation just started to rear its head and so the debate around conservation of tropical rainforests as opposed to commercial logging was a very potent debate in the 1960s and 70s and into the 80s, of course, until World Heritage was declared in the late 1980s. And from Atherton, we moved to South Queensland, to Gympie, where I became the inaugural principal of what was then the Forestry Training Centre at Gympie, which was set up to train technical staff forest rangers for the Queensland Forestry Department. It was an interesting move from field forestry into educational aspects of the forestry, which proved to be very helpful later on. And you ended up in Nepal. Uh, that was probably the highlight of both professional and personal careers, I think. In 1981, uh, I had an opportunity to go to Nepal and we spent 10 years there working on an Australian government-funded program looking at what was euphemistically called community forestry, which was basically an attempt to engage local communities actively in management of forests, which they had traditionally used for their subsistence purposes, livelihood purposes for generations. And it was a period when the Himalayas were in the international news because of a massive amount of deforestation that had taken place in the previous century or so, and there was a perceived environmental crisis that was closely linked to deforestation and the communities to live in the hills in Nepal and other parts of Himalaya as well were perceived to be in a sense the villains of the peace that they were the ones who were supposedly cutting down the trees and leading to the degradation. So it's a period of intense debate about what were the root causes behind degradation of Himalayas and, and how to go about addressing those causes and one of the solutions at the time was seen to be somehow or another to reforest the hills and to stabilise the mountainsides and so we worked uh, with both government at all levels and local Local communities to work out mechanisms to essentially empower local communities legitimately to give them the mandate to manage the forest for their own benefit and at the same time to stabilise the landslides, landscapes and to basically restore the degraded ecosystems. That was a challenging period but hugely successful. It's one of the real success stories globally of the way that local communities have managed to rehabilitate degraded landscapes for their own benefit as well as for in a sense a government policy agenda as well. 
And how has uh, that worked now? Have you been had the opportunity to go back or watch how it's developed? Yes, until COVID, we were going back to Nepal two or three times a year mostly. So I kept very, very close contact with a lot of friends and acquaintances, colleagues uh, in Nepal and other parts of Himalaya. And it's been wonderfully successful. It's been one of those real success stories. It's been written up widely in the literature, both the scientific literature as well as the popular literature. Local communities now manage about 1.2, 1.3 million hectares of forest land around the country, mostly in the hills, to some extent on the lower plains as well. And about a 30% or 40% of the Nepal population are actually involved in community forest management groups, community forest user groups that are the active managers of the land in partnership with the government. So governments provide technical input and the communities actually manage the forest resource themselves. Now the, the forests have basically regrown and, and regreened the hills. There's been a, an upsurge of small to medium-sized enterprises that are utilising the forest for all sorts of things. What a wonderful example. Yes, challenging at the time, very difficult, changing forest management paradigms, which in Nepal, as in most countries, had been very top-down, so technically driven top-down management paradigms. And to shift that paradigm to basically a bottom-up paradigm where governments shifted from policing and licensing to really facilitating a process of community development. It's a pretty major transition, which have implications, of course, for the way that forest profession is trained and educated. So a big shift had to take place, not just on the ground in the villages and in the forest, but right through government policy and legislation and into the education system as well. So a really major transition that's still actively working. Dr Donald Gilmore, who's received a King's Birthday Honour for his work in the forestry sector, speaking to Jennifer Nichols. It's six to one. Their road to greatness began months ago. After a summer-long effort, the brown bears at Brooks River have reached peak fat. Feasting on sockeye salmon, they've been working away at getting ready for hibernation. And if you've never heard of Fat Bear Week, I hadn't either before the start of this week, but it's bringing me no end of joy. And as Ranger Felicia Jimenez explains, it's getting popular every year. Fat Bear Week is a celebration of success, adaptability, and resilience in our brown bears. Um, Bears need to get fat to survive winter hibernation, and Katmai's pristine ecosystem is what allows that to happen because we protect um, this beautiful pristine ecosystem that sustains that salmon run where bears get really fat. Um, It is a tournament-style bracket, and we pit bears in head-to-head matches to see which one is the fattest one, and you, the public, get to vote on your favorite fat bear. Yes, you do. From 80 bears, just 12 are chosen to be part of the tournament. Ranger Naomi Boak explains, it is a ruthless process. Choices begin at the beginning of the season. So first, a bear has to demonstrate success at gaining a lot of weight um, so they can become fat enough for hibernation. Um, And as interpretive rangers, those of us who choose the bears, um, we're always looking for a good story. So fatness isn't everything. We want bears who have shown us a a new way of getting fat or that they've overcome obstacles. We want this bracket to be filled with good stories. And the other determining factors are the bears have to show up. 
because some bears show up only in the beginning of the season and others show up only at the end of the season. And then we have to get good pictures of them, which is why I say we, we start the very beginning of the season working on Fat Bear Week. So um, if we don't have a good skinny photo and if the bears don't come out of the water and stop fishing for a second at the end of the season, sorry, no Fat Bear Week. Thankfully, there is a Fat Bear Week. That's Ranger Naomi Boak tomorrow. I'll introduce you to the 12 bears that made this year's cut. Let's head to the Roma sale. Here's David Friend with the interim report. Roma agents yarded 3,981 head, 850 less than last sale. Cattle were once again drawn from New South Wales, far western Queensland, the local supply area. Market is sluggish due to the increased planting condition lines. At the time of this interim report, lightweight yielding steers returning to the paddock averaged up to 10 cents less. Lightweight yielding steers under 200 kilos made to 272 to average 242. Yielding steers 200 to 280 kilo averaged 246 and made to 276. Lightweight steers 280 to 330 kilos returning to the paddock made to 254 to average 228. Yearling steers 480 kilos plus made to 220 to average 217. Growing steers 500 to 600 kilo averaged 205, topped at 210. Heavy bulls to 174. The heifers and cows to be sold. This has been David Friend for the MLA National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, David. Let's head to Warwick now where the markets followed the trend of others losing ground. Here's Errol Luck. Good afternoon. Supply of stock listed by 233 head to 1,027 at Warwick. The overall yarding contained extra numbers of plain or finished cattle with all classes selling to cheaper trends. All the regular feeder and wholesale buyers attended, however, not all export processors were operating. At the time of this injury report, lightweight yielding steers were backed by five, selling to 298. Yielding steers to feed made to 230 and heavy yielding steers to feed lost 50, selling to 198. Yielding heifers to restock is made to 170 with the lesser quality lines selling at 142. Well bred yielding heifers to feed for the domestic market went against the trend and selling to $2.40. Growing steers to processors made 258 to average 212 and heifers to processors made 182 to average 155. Lightweight cows sold from 80 to 137 and heavy cows sold from 160 to average 140 and backed by 45 cents. Heavy bulls lost 40 cents and sold at 189. This has been error luck. MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Errol. And that's your country hour for today. G'day, Linda from Miller Miller, who said, thankfully, the rats have never gotten too bad at her place, but they have been feeding up on the peanuts. And also, she did work experience at the forestry training complex in 1981. Linda, seems like we're all over the patch with your, um, your experience at the country hour today. Thanks for your company. Remember to get your latest rural news online at any time, abc.net.au slash rural, and tune in for the Rural Report from a quarter past six tomorrow. My name is Callie Buchanan. Thanks for your company. Time to get the news now. It's one o'clock.